I'm Kieran. And I'm Eve. This is Kitchen Table Cult. Where two quiverful escapees talk about our experiences in the cultish underbelly of the religious right. Hi, Eve. <laughs> Hi, Kieran. I stayed up so late finishing this book because I had been taking my fine time because I have been like scribbling all over every page, yelling back at it. <laughs> it's legit. So I'm a little tired this this morning, afternoon, whatever we are at, but um, how are you? I'm also tired. I was up late, not for book reading reasons, because I, I read the book that we're about to talk about on the train back from Portland, and it was great because it's reading on the train is the best, honestly, mm-hmm. because there is nothing to distract you, especially on the coast starlight. There is like six hours where you're just completely without cell service. So it's perfect as long as your train isn't full of Nazis like it was on the way up, (laughs) which was (laughs) which is frightening. Uh, But before we talk too much about the book, let's introduce our guest, Kristen. Hello, Kristen. Please introduce yourself. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah, thank you for having me. So yes, I'm Kristen Dumay, and I'm the author of Jesus and John Wayne, How I Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. And uh, just really, really excited to be here with you guys and uh, talk as a historian and in ways that I think mesh pretty closely with your lived experience. So thanks for having me. So, so thrilled to have you. And and this is coming out in paperback tomorrow, I believe, right? It is. It is. Tomorrow is June 8th. Yes. This will come out for the the timey-wimeyness. Oh, that's so exciting. I hope everybody gets the paperback so that they don't dent their walls up when they throw it across the room. (laughs) (laughs) It was was very... It wasn't so much relatable as it was it gave a lot of context to mm-hmm. my upbringing and figuring out where my parents came from and all of this. Yeah. So that was super helpful. Do you want to just like give us a quick little rundown about the book and then we can dive into sure. questions? Yeah. So essentially, this is a history of white evangelical masculinity and militarism over the last 75 years or so. And uh, it does a lot of things along the way. It essentially kind of redefines evangelicalism. And rather than just seeing it as a set of theological commitments, it suggests that we have to see evangelicalism as a historical and cultural movement, and in many cases as a consumer culture. And so we have to take seriously things like Christian publishing and Christian radio and television and so on as really, really key to what actually shapes people's beliefs and values. And um, and then it, it really puts this story of uh, conversations around what is Christian manhood and uh, questions of gender and power in the broader context of American history and American political history. And so it kind of brings us to 2016 and beyond. Uh, the paperback brings us all the way up through 2020. And we can really see the the Trump presidency and even uh, the January 6th insurrection in many ways is the culmination of this story. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's one of the things I love about this is that you're, you're tying all of these things together that we often feel like we joke on this podcast where we say the conspiracy is real, um, <laughs> but like it actually it is. is. And it is. It is. There's this, there's this like, you know, cultural fabricated naivete yeah. within our, like the community we came out of. And I just love that you're like 
actually laying it all out there and being like, no, really, it's there. <laughs> it is real. It is it actually, is. we're not nuts. We're not it just is. conspiracy theorists. And, and you know, another thing too that I've I've heard from a lot of evangelicals, conservative evangelicals kind of defensively argue that, you know, when they're rightly taken to task for their political views and um, it, there's a lot of pushback that's like, you know, oh, come on, that's just a tiny, you know, fraction of what it means to be an evangelical. <laughs> that's separate from what it really means to be an evangelical is all these lovely things and it's family values and it's going to church and it's worshiping and it's devotional life and it's Bible studies. And what I try to show here is, yeah, and all of that uh, actually fuels this political ideology, right? You can't separate them out. And yeah. the substance of this devotional practice and uh, really kind of spiritual formation is deeply political. Yeah, there's there's so many moments in here where I was just grateful that you were drawing the connections that I've intuitively known. And just having your historian's authority behind it was really, we felt like a relief. It was really yeah. nice. Yeah. So what like brought you to this topic? <laughs> I, your acknowledgments say that students introduce you to this and yeah. I'm super curious yeah. what the story is. Yeah, it was my students and I actually tell the full story in the in the new preface. So uh, because I get this question so often and uh, it was my students who brought this uh, to my attention and it was more than 15 years ago. I was a new professor at Calvin University where I still teach. And I wanted to uh, introduce them to the concept of gender in history, because I know that I certainly grew up thinking that gender is a static concept, and especially in Christian culture, you know, there is a God-ordained way to be a Christian woman and a Christian man in kind of throughout all of history. And then I went off to graduate school, and I was introduced to the study of gender in history, and it just totally blew my mind, you know, that masculinity is not constant. It changes over time. It's linked to the economy. It's linked to race and religion and foreign policy. And so, you know, new prof comes coming into Calvin, I wanted to teach my students the same thing and open their eyes. And so I lectured one day on Teddy Roosevelt in my U.S. Uh, survey. And I, he's just a great example of how uh, ideas of masculinity are in flux and how mm -hmm. it is linked to American power and to race and religion. And, and so I had this great little lecture. And then after class, a couple of guys uh, came up to me and said, Professor Dumay, there's this book that you have to read. And that book was John Eldridge's Wild at Heart. And, uh -oh. right, so this was around 2005 or 2006. And I had heard all about it. My church was doing, you know, book studies, all the guys in the uh -huh. dorm were. And I was just like, not my thing. You know, <laughs> I'm not right. even going to open that. But when they told me I needed to, I went down to the Family Christian Bookstore, bought a copy. And... Um, <laughs> Opened it up and there's a quote from Teddy Roosevelt right up front. And just like you know, Roosevelt's model of white uh, patriarchal masculinity, I saw that's exactly what, what Eldridge is doing, a very militant and militaristic conception. And he defined that as Christian manhood. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and he was inspired not primarily by the scriptures, but by Hollywood heroes, Mel Gibson's William Wallace. He was inspired by Roosevelt, by George Patton and random cowboys and soldiers and and so I was really intrigued. I, um, again, this was around 2005, 2006. I was also seeing all the survey data coming out around the Iraq war in the early mm -hmm. years, how white evangelicals were far and away more supportive of the war, preemptive war in general, condoning the use of torture. And so just like historians had asked of Roosevelt, I asked of evangelicals, you know, what might one of these things have to do with the other? 
Um, I actually ended up setting the project aside after a year, year and a half of research at the time, in part because uh, it was really uh, disturbing when I was uh, coming across. <laughs> yeah. It was revolting. This is the yep. heyday of Mark Driscoll, right? And Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, related to that, I just, so I wasn't sure if I wanted to live in that space for the, the length of time it would take me to write the book. And uh, also, I, I just couldn't figure out, if is this fringe or is this mainstream? Because it felt super fringe when I was reading this, you know, so misogynistic Mm -hmm. and just Mm -hmm. crass and militaristic. At the same time, I was looking at these numbers, you know, Eldridge selling more than 4 million copies. And and so I was like, okay, I'll come back to this. I had another book to finish. I had other things going on. And I just thought, I'll come back to it. And then in the fall of 2016, I came back to it. (laughs) So glad you did. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it really isn't fringe. And I think that's yeah. one of the, the right after the 2016 election, I was working for a like, private philanthropist who was pretty involved in democratic Senate politics. And so I was at a lot of his, it was his like executive assistant. And I was at all these little fundraisers um, with senators. And there was a lot of like grieving and trying to do postmortems on like what the fuck had just happened. Mm-hmm. And I just was like, they were, they were all looking at hillbilly elegy and I'm like, no, 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 no. This goes back so much further. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just kind of felt like the crazy person in the corner of the room. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Such a relatable feeling. (laughs) Whenever anything about like Christianity comes up and I'm in the same room, people are like, yeah, it's so weird that these people, and I'm like, it's actually not. It's that it's right. that's the norm. It's not it's not weird or fringe because people will still like being in the Bay Area is such a bubble yeah. that like mm. when I try to talk to people about the like realities of evangelicals and their pull in politics, people are like, that can't possibly be true. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> How could smart people believe such a thing? And you're like, oh, well. <laughs> I mean, that's exactly, As, how much time do you have? Th- that's exactly it, right? Because in 2016, the the question everybody seemed to be asking, include, including a lot of kind of never Trump respectable evangelicals, was how could evangelicals betray their values to vote for Trump? And because I had done this research, because I had been immersed in this literature, and it wasn't just Eldridge, right? There are dozens and dozens of books mm-hmm. that I had, I had, um, you know, just plunged into and then set aside, I, I knew that was, that was the, that was the wrong question, right? This was not a betrayal of evangelical values. People just didn't understand what those values actually are. And as soon as you place the assertion of white patriarchal authority at the center of family values, evangelicalism, which historically speaking, we have to, mm-hmm. then all these pieces fall into place all the way up through 2016 and through 2021. Yeah, yeah, who gets to define family is something you come back to a lot. And that's that's really a lot of it. One of the things that I, I want to ask you to talk to our listeners about a little bit, um, because I don't think a lot of people understand the context behind these things, is one, pretend we don't know nothing about the John Birch Society mm-hmm. and tell us why it's important. And then two, um, and this is probably the longer answer um, or the longer question to answer, but they the significance of the Vietnam War as a turning point in this. So the John Birch uh, Society, extremely right-wing uh, organization that was influential kind of behind the scenes, mostly behind the scenes, and uh, particularly in the, the 1960s, was always kind of this 
shadowy organization, right? Kind of hard to pin down. How influential is this? Who's actually a member? People were presumed to be members, but wouldn't go public with being members. And um, But really kind of far right, anti-communist, um, but across the board, kind of far right, uh, militaristic and uh, white supremacist and kind of this, this, this linchpin of you know, far right politics during this time when conservatives were, were really starting to coalesce as a, a right-wing political movement and really kind of taking over the Republican Party, moving into the Republican Party um, in this post-war era, um, right? Southern strategy is part of that. But it's it's kind of hard as you, really as a historian, when I was first would come across John Birch Society, it was easy to, again, count that as fringe, right? That's fringe. Mm-hmm. That's um, not the mainstream. And so, yes, mention that they're out there and then let's talk about real politics. But what you see when you look closer at this history is that they do pop up all over the place and people are members are presumed to be members and not exactly denying that they're members. And um, and so, I mean, really a theme of this book is the relationship between, you know, as I suggested, what is the connection between the mar- the fringe and the mainstream? And that's one example of many uh, in this book where you can see what is, is admittedly a fringe movement deeply shaping the mainstream, mainstream partisan politics, uh, mainstream evangelicalism as well. And so then we have to engage things like racism, sexism, misogyny, and, you know, virulent anti-communism and mm-hmm. anti-democratic impulses, frankly. The Vietnam War, so critical to the story that I tell. And that's something I wasn't prepared for when I set out on this research. My first clue that I would need to be looking closely at the Vietnam War was uh, just a bunch of popular books on Christian masculinity that came out in the 1990s. Because um, mm-hmm. I first w- was attuned to this project again around t- 2005, 2006. And so as a historian, the first thing I asked was, well, what came before this? And the Promise Keepers movement came before this, right? In the 1990s, it was, it, that was, it, you mentioned evangelical masculinity, everybody would say Promise Keepers. Yep. And yep. so, you know, what I was looking at in, in, in the 2000s was more extreme. It was, it was a, a different beast in many ways, but not entirely disconnected from the Promise Keepers movement. They, they were siblings who hated each other. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or you kind of grew up into uh, something, right? And and so when I looked at the literature that was really popular during the Promise Keepers movement, I saw time and again, these authors would open their books with uh, scenes from Vietnam. And Vietnam was this kind of uh, touchstone for authentic masculinity. And so it, clearly, there was a generation that was wrestling with the legacy of Vietnam. Uh, it, Vietnam, was it a good war? you know, American greatness, American goodness? Was it um, this badge of shame? What does it have to do with masculinity? And and so over and over again, people are opening up with Vietnam, Vietnam. Uh, so then I started, again, going further back in history. And what I came to see is that the, the Vietnam War and the anti-war movement did understandably, and I would argue rightly, lead a lot of Americans to question kind of their inherited beliefs in the post-war era. In the, in, in the Cold War era, that Americans are righteous, that Americans mm-hmm. are as great as they are good, they are powerful, and they will use that power for, the, for, for good. Uh, you know, that was this kind of post-war idealism um, that, that flourished in the early uh, uh, Cold War era. 
And then a few things happen to kind of shake up that confidence. And, uh, you know, we have the civil rights movement, which is Mm -hmm. really calling into question uh, American virtue, American goodness. Mm -hmm. Uh, I also have the feminist movement that is questioning um, different understandings of power, gendered understandings of power and quote unquote traditional values. But then the, the Vietnam War in particular, right, the news stories are coming back from Vietnam, you know, appearing on the the nightly news and Americans are are starting to say wait a minute maybe we aren't the good guys right maybe we aren't fighting the good war uh like we always believe we are fighting well, and, and so a lot of Ameri- also one of the first yeah. wars that had like mass media like day-to-day reco- exactly. reporting so, like the, the world so wars were it. much more like curated very much very much and the narrative was controlled and and now the the mainstream media was bringing the actual war it was still it was still somewhat curated, but but right. not nearly as much. And so a lot of Americans are questioning, uh, you know, what the U.S. is doing. Evangelicals do not. This is when they really double down on these, quote unquote, traditional values. And they uh, link all of these like disruptions together. And so, you know, the, the racial status quo for Southern white evangelicals, they want to bolster uh, white patriarchal authority in terms of um, fighting desegregation. They're fighting against feminism, which is threatening American masculinity, which is so crucial because look what's happening in Vietnam and what is wrong with our boys that they can't defeat this enemy. <laughs> Clearly emasculation. And so we need to. Right. But the problem is, whereas in the early or the, the late 40s and early 50s, they were like, they held these views in common with so many other Americans. By the 1960s, there's this division. And so mm-hmm. these are oppositional values. And that's when these really move to the core of evangelical cultural identity and their political identity. And, and that's really the, the story that I tell. So the solution to all of these disruptions, again, is the assertion of white patriarchal power. Yeah. Yeah, it's so yeah. important to understand. <laughs> yeah, it was, I was surprised, like, I feel like I shouldn't have been too surprised, but like, I was surprised at exactly how much gender came into play and in these essential like ideas of how gender should be performed because I thought like it was maybe just my family being like super extreme (laughs) but it it wasn't I think the point that you make somewhere when you're talking about the private schools and the desegregation cases um where like gender becomes more of a focus as the civil rights movement is like gaining ground and it's like becoming this like replacement Mm-hmm. conversation for the race conversation mm-hmm. in the church. And, and I think a lot of that kind of goes back to like trying to assert white femininity as like the ideal womanhood and therefore yeah. black women can't be, you know, good mm-hmm. women in the church in the same ways. And, you know, it yeah. becomes this like double speak. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, you know, I set out to write a book about gender, about masculinity, and I, I realized I was also writing a book about race, and that's that's how this works mm-hmm. because this is, you know, the white in the subtitle is 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 there for a reason, right? This mm-hmm. is a history of white evangelicalism, conservative white evangelicalism, and ideas of gender are are deeply racialized, and and history makes that clear. You know, you can kind of assert that and use some theory and talk about how you know race and gender are always intertwined, but history just makes that plain, right? So, and you can see that 
in these quotes and in the, you know, how, what, what the anxieties were Mm -hmm. that when it became unacceptable to espouse blatantly racist ideas, you know, post 1965, then the attention shifts to, um, to gender, but in, in a, in a very racialized way, right? So the, the need to protect vulnerable white womanhood, I mean, there Mm -hmm. is such a long and horrific history <laughs> to that concept, oh, yeah. but, but oh, we yeah. see it repackaged to uh, protect vulnerable, pure, innocent white children, mm-hmm. to defend the authority of white Christian parents over their children, no mention of the authority of black parents to choose schools for their kids, right? You know, yep. even moving into <laughs> things like law and order politics too, like it doesn't appear to be about race on the surface, but Scott's just beneath the surface and look at history. And it is absolutely and entirely about race. In the trans community, there's this saying that keeps coming around right now. It's a scratch a turf and you'll find a racist. Hmm. And, yeah. and I feel like that's like a lot of the subtext of this book. Zero yeah. lies. Yeah. It's, it's just so connected historically. And so it's no surprise that it, it, it would continue to be today. That's the way it functions. But, but the language is not right. It, it hides the, the, the role that race plays. And within white evangelical communities too, uh, you know, there's this commitment to quote unquote colorblindness. And, yeah. and so it's really hard to have these conversations because there are many white evangelicals who, who genuinely believe they are absolutely not racist and this is nothing to do about race, but they will be, you know, pro-law enforcement, anti-Black Lives Matter, but totally not about race. Right. And sure. again, history, just like, yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah, I loved how you were, you would name a historical figure and their impact and note that they considered themselves apolitical over yes. and over mm-hmm. and over. Yes. And one of the things that's so funny about all of this is like, you know, when I left the the Sovereign Grace community, there was this there was this like joke within that community about like people outside our community don't understand how we speak. And we have to like, they, they were basically explaining, you know, we have to code switch for them, for, yes. for outsiders. And there was like, I, I wish I could find it um, like a YouTube recording of it, but there's, there was a sketch that was done for Covenant Life's 20th anniversary celebration week where there was like this black woman and a white woman and the black woman was really confused at everything the white woman was saying because the white woman was using the CLC lingo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And, the, and yeah. the black woman was like a normal outsider who was just like, what? <laughs> what? Yeah. Your racism yeah. is showing. Yeah. 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 And at the same time, like, I mean, what I, what I find in responses to Jesus and John Wayne is just a ton of shock and horror and uh, just deeply emotional responses among white evangelicals or former white evangelicals who read this. And among others, particularly black Christians who have moved in and out of evangelical (laughs) spaces, they're like, "Uh uh-huh. Yeah. Thank you for putting these pieces together. But yeah, we, we knew this all, right. (laughs) This is all visible to us. That's why I said cultivated naivete earlier, because like it's intentional so that you can claim you didn't know and you are excused from taking responsibility Mm -hmm. for it. Exactly. Exactly. This innocence and, and, you know, just presumed self-righteousness, presumed righteousness for the self. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, so one of the things that stuck out to me quite a bit was, um, promise keepers because that, that was 
so this we talked a couple minutes earlier about how like the book really contextualized like where my parents came from and how they came to become fundamentalists and when my parents were like early in their marriage and they were thinking of getting a divorce before they realized that was like the unforgivable sin. (laughs) My dad was listening to radio pastors um, and like D James Kennedy and Charles Stanley and a bunch of the people you name in the book are all people I grew up hearing at home all the time. And my dad was a promise keeper Mm-hmm. When that like started out in the early '90s, and that was like a big thing for him, and he went to Mine some was like too. of yeah, their yeah. stuff, yeah. and yeah. so it was really, really interesting to see like how that ties into the Christian cult of toxic masculinity, which yeah. is like my takeaway from the book is <laughs> evangelical Christians that are this fundamentalist are really just like part of a cult of toxic masculinity. Like that's, that's it. They just want to keep passing that on. But then like, obviously Mark Driscoll happens and you get like this super hyper terrible masculinity. Like, can you really quickly, because I know you kind of cover this in the book, like explain how we got from tame promise keepers to Uh Mark Untamed. Untamed. Yeah. It's a new tagline in the 2000s. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so yeah, the 1990s were But, the, but super- the, Driscoll was called them pussified. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. So he was rejecting them. It was, uh, uh, you know, the Dawson Creek masculinity, essentially. Um, so he, uh, so 1990s, super interesting because the Cold War ends. So all these kind of stable categories are no more. And so this is the time of confusion. That word pops up so often in evangelical conversations about masculinity and politics. And and so the, the Promise Keepers is, is an interesting response because it is a confusing response. It's contradictory. It's, uh, you have um, certainly ongoing patriarchy. Um, and if you're listening to D. James Kennedy, you're still getting the culture wars, politics, and so on. Um, but you also have some formulations that are, you know, Gary Oliver, quite egalitarian. Mm-hmm. And, and so you have to be careful when you meet people who participated in the Promise Keepers. Some of them latched on to some of these, you know, on a teachings more progressive, some more conservative, um, many somewhere in the middle where you could kind of hold them in tension and pick and choose. And um, that's where I talk about, you know, soft patriarchy or tender warriors. This contradiction is very evident. Um, and, but for some, they were coming out of a really harsh patriarchal background and they latched on to the more emotive, the softer side. And so the movement itself is very, uh, is, it's varied. And, you know, we can talk about race as this, this moment of possibility, racial reconciliation. All of that is true and it's complicated. But what you see happening by the end of the decade is a kind of backlash emerging among those who were trying to revitalize patriarchy, who never let it go, who were not comfortable. Things have become too soft. This was not cool. Also, politically, we need to double down on culture wars politics. And, (laughs) you know, we need to get rid of this confusion and we're going to show you the way here. Um, And so uh, kind of hard right. And those books start uh, emerging. And so by 2001, that's when we have uh, John Eldridge's Wild at Heart. That's when we have James Dobson's Bringing Up Boys, Doug Wilson's Future Men, all a very kind of militant, testosterone-driven masculinity to try to put things back on course. And then 9-11 happens, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and so that just amplifies, that, as Eldridge says, you know, every man has a battle to fight, needs a battle to fight. Well, here we have it. <laughs> Not just metaphorical. We've got our battle. And and then that's when Driscoll, too, you know, he had already in the 90s been you – know, 
again, with others, like moving towards this more um, patriarchal, militant, misogynistic understanding of Christianity and masculinity. And, and, and his heyday is really, you know, in the early 2000s, because that message of, of embracing and of rejecting the, the softer patriarchy, the softer masculinity, the more emotive side, the egalitarianism, that just has such widespread resonance, both within evangelicalism. I mean, look at those book sales in the early 2000s, but also beyond evangelicalism in the the era of the war on terror. Yeah. And I, I really, I think that if the church had been unwilling to give Mark Driscoll a pass in that moment, we maybe would have narrowly avoided Trump. Yeah. I think that he's he was still kind of inevitable, but because Mark Driscoll was so widely embraced, it yeah. was not very hard to jump yeah. from one to the next. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he already had pastors blatantly preaching misogyny as like the word of God. Yeah. Penis homes. Yeah. 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 Oh the Axis Hollywood, oh. Hollywood tape is nothing compared to nothing. that. Nothing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. No, I like every time I hear the name Driscoll, I just remember of this one time that my <laughs> ex-spouse and I were in a car going to like a company retreat and the people who we were carpooling with were listening to Mark Driscoll. It was a three-hour ride. Mark Driscoll <laughs> was talking the entire time yeah. and it was about like how new- newlyweds and how you have to be Oof. submissive and the people who were driving were like recently married and I'd been married for like a couple years at that point and had figured out that like the patriarchy is bullshit <laughs> yeah. so the entire time i'm in this car i'm hearing mark driscoll just like yell about how terrible it is to be seen as anything close to effeminate and like how women are terrible and weak and awful and i was just like i am dying inside i need mm-hmm. to get out of this car i am mm-hmm. stuck in the middle of oregon <laughs> there is no escape yeah. like it's just it's it's so bad. And, and like, I was still like, I was leaving Christianity slowly at that point in time, but I was still very much a Christian and I was mm-hmm. just horrified by what I was listening to Yeah, because it was just so toxic and so terrible. And I just felt so bad for like his wife, honestly, yeah. who yeah. has to mm-hmm. put up with him. Exactly. And, you know, I've, I've had so many conversations both in researching this book and then since the book has come out with people who whose lives were shaped around these teachings. Um, You know, so many stories of newly married couples who tried to live according to these teachings because they thought that's what you do to be a faithful Christian. That's what you do to be a good wife, a good husband. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. It's not meant to work. You know, I I actually am a Christian. And so I would argue that this is, you know, totally kind of counter uh, biblical masculinity, biblical femininity, and it's just counter how humans are wired. And it certainly isn't, doesn't make for flourishing relationships. And so the stories really are, are devastating. They they are mm-hmm. traumatic, and I think a lot of people are only beginning to process uh, their their own trauma here. Yeah, I really appreciated how you kind of brought that up in the book, also as like these are the things that people were teaching. Like they were actually teaching women to stay in abusive marriages yeah. because, well, maybe it was just a little verbal abuse, so it's okay. Like that was stuff that my mom counseled yeah. people as well. It was yeah. just so pervasive in the culture like I don't know of anyone in the circles that I grew up with who taught anything else besides stay with your husband and be more submissive and be more sexually available and you did a really good job like 
outlining that and the impact in the book, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, no, it's uh, one of the interesting responses I've I've received quite often from this book is kind of outsiders to this tradition saying that it actually made them more empathetic to those on the inside, which first caught me off guard because, you know, I, 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 empathy is a virtue that historians strive for. But, you know, there's also there's some judgment in this book reading between the lines. <laughs> uh, I think it's fair to say, you know, it's, it's a critical uh, book, yeah. as the subtitle suggests. And so I, I've, I've thought about that, but it does make sense, right? Because you can see that this isn't just hypocrisy. This isn't just, you know, like really toxic ideas and actions. This is people who have been formed and and then families over generations and have been formed and, you know, discipled to use an evangelical word (laughs) into believing that this is all good and true. Mm -hmm. And so once you you see just, and and when I was reading or or researching and I, I, you know, I actually was incredibly discouraged by what I was under uh, uncovering because I knew I was like, this is so deeply embedded. This just goes so deep. This is not going to change. Um, but to see that there, the flip side is there's there's empathetic, uh, there's empathy available for for some of the actors, and maybe less so for some of the leaders who are really pulling the strings here and who were you know uh, consolidating their own power. But for many of the followers, not absolving of responsibility certainly. Um, and there's a lot of complicity that needs to be interrogated, I think, mm-hmm. but, um, at least a context here for understanding how so many people came to promote such harmful teachings. Yeah. Well, it's, it's so much easier to control a large group of people if you're keeping them busy with the day-to-day struggles of something that's unattainable, yes. um, mm-hmm. as, as being normal and like the goal. And I think that's, that's a lot of what the complementarian, you know, theology really pushed. Yeah, 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 and a lot of money's being made too, right? You right, know, because God, so much you you raise this the specter of gender confusion, and hey, I've got a book that'll answer it for you. Uh, you know, so go go buy John Eldridge's for twenty one ninety nine. Have you tried going shooting at dawn? Exactly. That'll help you. That'll fix you. It'll make exactly. you feel better. It'll make you feel better. Men yep. need to kill stuff. Don't listen to the mainstream media. Subscribe to World Magazine, right? Get your news right. at Christianity Today. Get your news on Christian Radio. Get your don't listen to secular music, right? It's a business too. It's easier to so get what, a dopamine hit if you think that you're you're a bad person. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah, and if you're you know in a cosmic battle and you're the uh-huh. hero, right? Mm-hmm. That feels kind of good. One of the things that I always harken back to is the city on the hill stuff. Um, you know, going back to Bradford's William Bradford's uh-huh. speech. And, you know, when I teach American Lit, the, when I start it, I'm, I ask my students to be constantly looking for where, where does this mythology of America, as we yeah. know it, begin? And one of the things that I, I wanted to ask you about is you, you use the word corrupted a faith in your yeah. subtitle and have just from my own reading, I feel like this, this was all the way through yeah, yeah. before, yeah. before the founding yeah, of the United States. I'm like, I don't know that like, I, I feel like it like the goods were, were broken to start with. Um, yeah. Do you yeah. want to talk about that a little? I do. I do. Yeah. Guilty as charged. Absolutely. Yeah, that was the, uh, the hangup I had on this, the subtitle, not that it's too harsh, uh, but I've, I've said this in a number of interviews and uh, unprompted too. I'm like, just so you all know, that's not a historical claim. 
It is not historical claim. <laughs> yeah. It is. Okay, good. <laughs> There's no such thing. There's no such thing as a faith being corrupted historically. That, that There's a normative claim there, right? And mm-hmm. um, so this is a book of history. But again, there is this little critical uh, framing of, of you know, in the intro and in the conclusion. And what I'm doing mm-hmm. in that subtitle is I am speaking directly to evangelicals, to mm-hmm. self-professed Bible-believing evangelicals who um, I'm showing them their own history of how quickly and easily they have set aside pretty core biblical teachings of mm-hmm. love your neighbors yourselves, love your enemy, the fruit of the spirit, the Beatitudes, right? We could go on and on, love the stranger. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, um, or, or the, you know, historical doctrine of the Trinity. And there's a lot that, <laughs> yes, yes, uh, right. <laughs> that these Bible-believing evangelicals are like, yeah, never mind. That doesn't really well, apply this is, here. This is, I think, what drove us to get where we are today is, yeah. is we we assumed in good faith that everyone around us were true believers, just like we were. And so when we started asking questions that were holding the community to their own values and were disregarded over and over and over, it eroded our ability to communicate with that community. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Ultimately like that hypocrisy is what made me kind of leave the faith Mm -hmm. because I was like, I grew up being told that we should care for the poor Mm -hmm. and the sick and like help people and use our money to not like make ourselves rich, but to like better our community, which is all like very socialist communist like beliefs, right? That are stemming from everything that Jesus taught. And I was like, Mm -hmm. I believe these things. Like I believe that we should care for people. I haven't changed my beliefs. You've been moving the benchmarks. Exactly. And so I wrote like in 2010 or something, I wrote like a, this is where I'm at with Christianity. It's, I believe that we're supposed to love people and that that's supposed to be our most important work. And loving looks like supporting people and not like yelling at them for being different than you. And the response I got from Christians was, no, that's heresy. You're wrong. And I was like, (laughs) well, I guess I don't belong in this religion anymore because and and that's something that, like I still like all of those values are still part of me today where it's like I want to take care of my community I want to help people I like <laughs> I want to live in like a not really a commune but like I want to live in a world <laughs> where we all care for each other and mutual aid we're is not wrong. subjected yeah exactly like all of these things well, that's why I appreciate the the appeal that you're making because I, I see what you're doing with the corruption and they appeal to the, the evangelical readers because it's it's playing off of that like presumed innocence that is yes, mm-hmm. exactly. kind of defining in that community. So I, I appreciate what you're doing there. And that's that's very smart. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, it did really it did good. give me a lot of pause. We, you know, talked about it back <laughs> and forth, like just to be clear, but but we went with it. And and yeah, I think it I think that is exactly how it's hitting many evangelicals. And so many evangelicals are 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 now in or former evangelicals, but current too. You know, confronting exactly what you're just talking about this. Mm-hmm. Wait a minute. My values are not being uh embraced and lived out by my community that taught me these values. And so there is a rupture happening right now uh, within evangelicalism, this reckoning. Yeah. It's like, uh, you know, traditional values for whomst. Like (laughs) who, what are these values and who are they helping? Because it's certainly not helping everyone Jesus said that we were supposed to help. 
One yeah, of the let's talk about I'm race, like, gender, and power, and then <laughs> right. let's answer that yeah. question. Exactly. One of the things that I'm like digging, wanting to dig into, and I, I don't know if there's enough historical credence to this idea, but like, I've been hearing in as I've been exploring stuff, like that the the idea of the nuclear family in America kind of got created as a way of union busting mm. mm-hmm. in the 30s, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, this makes sense. Yeah, like, let's and make them more like- mobile and separate from their communities, and uh, yeah, that fragment the 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 family network and then you you make everybody more dependent on the corporations yeah and it was also peddled as like anti-communist like if you wanted to not be communist you got to buy your single family home in the suburbs and yeah the male breadwinner ideal right really does emerge in the 20th century and um i mean some ways labor activists argued for that as a you know as a, a kind of right that would enable flourishing families as opposed to having all members of the working class, including children out in the factories, right? And so mm-hmm. uh, it has a has a bit of a complicated history, but certainly in the in the post-war era, we have to think about what's going on. And we have, um, you know, there's a movement to get women back out of the workforce after uh, World War II, uh, certainly, mm-hmm. uh, pressure, coercion. Uh, you have the celebration of the uh, uh, of uh, the nuclear family in the uh, Leave it to Beaver kind of era, Mm -hmm. right? The baby boom era. And you also have a huge injection of federal money to uh, support predominantly, almost exclusively white middle-class families, but that's funneled through the male breadwinner. It's through the GI Bill largely, right? And so, um, and uh, and, uh, non-white uh, vets were largely excluded from these mm-hmm. benefits in practice. And so you have this, uh, you know, a ton of money just be- fueling the, the rise of suburbs, fueling, you know, uh, men going to college and buying homes in the suburbs, getting those home loans. All of that is deeply subsidized by the federal government. And it's, it's this aberration in terms of American history. Right? It's this weird moment. And that's the only the, time the middle class actually existed. <laughs> right? yeah. when it, and yeah. it did because it was propped up by with federal funding and only right. to the you know white middle class, really. And it was this this blip. But that is the the moment that, you know, this mythical moment that's unsustainable that many conservative evangelicals want to go back to to make America great again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know we're going to we're getting strapped for time, but I want to ask one more question and I want to ask you about the the just war theory. And one of the things I think is really interesting is that you start with Teddy Roosevelt. And if I understand the history correctly, he was the first American president to really try to make the U.S. an internet or like a global power, um, especially in his involvement in Panama. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of from that moment on that the, the U.S. was trying to be a major player on the world stage. And they really hadn't had the military force to do that beforehand and mm-hmm. all mm-hmm. of that. And you keep trying this back to the just war theory, just war theory and this like assertive masculinity. And I, I just love how you connect that to the international politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, with Roosevelt, we see this this real quest for kind of um, to situate America as a global power and to do that through military might and through U.S. empire, right, through imperialism, the Spanish-American War. And we see the ways that he does that as he links, uh, you know, white masculinity 
to mm-hmm. the assertion of of this power on the global stage. And there's an interesting context too in terms of like the West being closed, the frontier closing down, you know, the place where men used to go and prove their masculinity, at least <laughs> mythical masculinity. And, mm-hmm. and now, you know, we have new frontiers, the frontiers of empire. And so um, we, we can we can prove our, our manhood there. We must prove our manhood there. Otherwise, we, we, we're, you know, uh, we'll be threatened with emasculation and, and then what will come of America and American power. And then, yeah, throughout the, the 20th century, World War One is a little bit interesting because you do have this wider embrace of muscular Christianity, but uh, you have liberal Protestants as gung-ho military war and muscular Christianity as conservative Protestants. And so um, that's important for me to sketch out just to show that things haven't always been as they are now. Like things mm-hmm. are up for grabs. Yeah. Not all conservative Protestants were um, Christian nationalists. And, you know, a lot of progressive uh, or liberal Protestants were, and it, they meant different things by it. But again, things were different. And then it, it really is in the, the World War II and especially early Cold War era that, that these things come together. And that's where you can see, you know, just war, any war that the U.S. Yeah. is fighting yep. is by definition a just war. And any tactics used to achieve victory are by definition just. And so the whole idea of just war theory really is just entirely thrown out of the window. And I love that you do that, that line through that. It's, it's really important. Yeah, it was, it's such a good book. Everyone should go buy it. Where can they buy it? I guess everywhere books are. Everywhere (laughs) books are sold. And do you have a favorite independent bookstore you want to recommend? Uh, I like Hearts and Minds in uh, uh, Pennsylvania. That's an online, uh, or it's in it's brick and mortar too. Um, I'm a big fan of Schuler Books here in Grand Rapids, and so work closely with them here in Michigan. But Bookshop.org is a great place to go and you know find your own local stores. But really, just you know just drive down the road or, or take a walk and find a local <laughs> bookstore. It should be available in all bookstores. Uh, and it's even in airports now or will be Yay! as of tomorrow. Nice. So you can pick one up as you travel. That's how and, you know you win. Yeah, exactly. That's pretty <laughs> thrilling. You know, I love I love to imagine the conversations. This is going to spark mid-flight. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> so, God. Yeah. Can't I, wait to hear. I alluded to this earlier in the episode, but my train up to Portland, I was trying to read the book and I had three Nazis <laughs> oh sitting like adjacent to me. And I was just like, I'm just going to read this down here where you're not going to come in and punch me for it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it, the title catch. Uh, I'm catching catch for sure. Attention. It is. It's great. Yeah. And where can people find you if they want to go follow you on the internet? Yeah, I have a website, kristendumez.com. That's uh, Dumez is D-U-M-E-Z, like Dumez. Um, I'm on Twitter and Facebook, both at KK Dumez, K-K-D-U-M-E-Z. And I'm on Twitter way, way, way too much. So if you're looking for me, <laughs> that's where I will be. Terminally online like the rest of us. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank, thank you so much for oh, coming you. and talking with us. This has been so good. I'm so excited about your book. It just like I'm going into therapy in like five minutes and literally <laughs> the stuff in this book is what I'm going to talk about in therapy because suddenly I understand my parents so much better. So, so thank you. I hear that therapists <laughs> are actually assigning session. this to to folks. So you're not nice. alone. It goes both ways. So thank I'm, you. It's, it's been a delight. to our therapists. Yes. yes. I'm just going to be like, can you read this book? Thank you. Yes. Absolutely. Well, thank you both so much. I I really love chatting with you. All right. Take care.
thank y'all for listening to us uh, ramble on and joining us this time. Thank you so much to Dave the Great for making us sound good every single week. And if you like the music on this podcast, that is due to the heavens. The song is Janet from their album Stenazzo. Thank you for letting us use your music. Uh, you can support the podcast and join the Slack by going to Patreon, which is patreon.com slash kitchen table cult pod. We have a good time. There's a lot of real good animal pictures and we, you know, bitch about brains being fragile soup and other things. It's great. You should join us. If you have any questions or comments that are nice or constructive, <laughs> uh, you, can, <laughs> you can email us at kitchentablecult at gmail.com or poke us on Twitter at kitchencultpod. Thanks for listening. As always, we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.